0: The statistics are grim. One in five working moms say they've been passed over for an important assignment or for a promotion because they have children. And women who take even one year off to have kids come back to earn 40% less than their peers. Working moms outpace, outperform, and outwork their peers. So why don't companies make an effort to support working moms? And how can working moms advocate for themselves in the workplace and in their careers? Frankly, we're tired of asking for a seat at the table. It's time to make our own table. And we're going to talk about how. I'm Zabin Mirza, and this is Moms at Work. Welcome to Moms at Work. I'm Zabine Mirza, and of course, you're listening to the official jobs.mom podcast. That's jobs.mom. We're connecting women and mothers to mom-friendly jobs and employers with inclusive cultures, mom-supportive policies and programs, and work patterns that embrace flexibility. Of course, we're also bringing you all the career resources and support you need to move into or move up the corporate ladder. Now, Talking about work and talking about ladders, we've got someone here today who has put in the work and knows a thing or two about the uphill battle to climb that ladder we were just talking about. She's climbed it in heels, two kids with a gavel, and in her judge's robe. And she's here with us today as a guest, the Honorable Judge Anne-Marie Carruth of the 72nd District Court in Lubbock County, Texas. Anne-Marie, thank you for being here on Moms at Work.
1: No, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I don't know if all those things are true. I probably climbed more in flats, to be honest, because <laughs> I love a pair of good flats. But um, I thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and honor to join you this afternoon.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, and I'm so excited that this is my one chance to call you, Your Honor. And I just want, <laughs> and I just want to know when you walk into a into like a room at your house, does somebody in the background yell "All rise," or is that, that doesn't happen?
1: No, no. You know, I tried to get my husband to do it. He's like, "Yeah, I'm not doing that." And he said, like, "I'm not calling you judge or the honorable either." And I was like, "Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all." No, he's, he cannot. You know let me have that. But uh, I've always joked too, If I mean, if I got to pick what someone was going to call me, it would be something more fabulous, you know, like queen of quite a lot or, you know, princess something, you know. So if we're going to get to choose, I'm choosing something other than that. But no, no one, no one yells all rise from behind.
0: Oh, well, well, all rise today (laughs) on Moms at Work for the Honorable Judge Anne-Marie Carruth. And Anne-Marie is, I mean, I could read you her bio and we would spend the entire episode talking about it. She is um, an incredible, incredible force in the legal world. Um, of course, she's coming to us from Texas where um, she serves on, uh, on this court and, and, and she'll tell us some stats about how long it's been since a woman's been on that bench. And um, she's a Texas techie. Um, and um, <laughs> for, for those of you that, that uh, don't know, my, my husband is from UT Austin, so they imagine themselves... To be sort of rivals, so Anne Marie and I can see each other on video. So my husband had me strategically place a longhorn in the background behind me to to kind of um, remind Anne Marie who's boss, I guess. But Anne Marie, you are the boss because you are yeah. a judge.
1: Let's be real. I mean, we're not imagining that there's a rivalry there. If there's definitely a rivalry. It's not imaginative. Um, but Texas Tech definitely takes the lead. So sorry, (laughs) Annemarie, sorry.
0: Well, Anne Marie, let's talk about taking the lead, right? You have taken the lead in a way, in a field, in a place and time that um, is is really unthinkable and and unimaginable. So this really, this episode is just about you, your life, your your career, starting with how and why you decided to go into law. How did you decide to pursue a judgeship? Please tell us a little bit about your day-to-day and how you got to where you are.
1: Well, I guess in some way, shape, or form, I've always known that I wanted to be an attorney. And of course, you know, becoming an attorney is that first, you know, step to a longer career and then obviously um, a judicial position. But I grew up in rural West Texas. Uh, My father was an attorney and a judge. He was also a district judge and a constitutional county judge. Um, My mother was a court reporter. They actually met in court and uh, my father apparently made an objection and my mom sort of like kind of giggled or scoffed at it, which, you know, (laughs) is totally um, unacceptable in the courtroom. And so during the break, he tells my mom, he says, look, if I win the objection, you buy me a cup of coffee. And if I, you know, if I lose the objection, then you have to buy me a cup of coffee. And to this day, I don't know who bought whom the coffee, but all I know is the rest was history And so when my parents got married, my, my um, aunt, my father's sister was actually his paralegal and he was in a law firm with my uncle, who was his brother, who was also an attorney. And so it's really kind of always been in the family and, you know, in some way, shape or form, I grew up really with the privilege of knowing what it looked like to practice law. So although so many of us grow up to do things that we've all, you know, dreamt about, we've you know, aspire to be, I really got to see firsthand what it meant to be an attorney. And so I think that's really what fueled me all of those years. I joke that, you know, if I hadn't known what the practice of law looked like, I might not have finished law school because law school is nothing like the practice of law, but I knew how much it meant to the community and how much it meant, you know, to people to be represented and to have an advocate on their side. And that's really what I wanted to do. And so, although I, you know, kind of say that I come by honestly and I sort of lived my um, own, um, different version of To Kill a Mockingbird because I had a wonderful mother, but no pesky brother. So I, you know, I kind of liken it To Kill a Mockingbird. I just got to see it firsthand. And I think that makes such a difference when you, you know, are entering a field and you realize what an impact it can have for the positive. And then I graduated from law school and started practicing and realized that, you know, those rose colored glasses that I had on, you know, my entire life isn't always what happens in real life. And so um, a few years into practicing, um, a position came open here in Lubbock County that I ran for and won. And really my platform was the courts need to be accessible to everyone. Everyone within the court system needs to be treated with respect. Um, and that really we can kind of demystify the courts by being more um, in the public eye and communicating what the courts do to kind of demystify what happens you know, behind closed doors, so to speak. Um, Even though they're open courts, most people don't really know what happens in the court system. Right. And so, um, you know, my experience with, you know, judges who were not always, um, you know, the most fair, or perhaps they were, um,
0: maybe had a little bit of a
1: bias towards one attorney or the other, um, just really kind of prompted me to speed up my, (laughs) um, you know, my hopes and dreams of maybe becoming an attorney. I mean, excuse me, becoming a judge. Just because of my firsthand knowledge,
0: yeah, and and I think that's I think that's so important. What you just mentioned, this platform of making the courts accessible and demystifying it for those of us that are not necessarily privy to the inner workings of the court, we have no idea what's going on. I watch Judge Judy; she yells at <laughs> people, and that's in my mind. <laughs> how this works, but there is exactly how it works. Oh, it is. Okay. So, so, (laughs) right. So, okay. So, so we're, we're not so far off base here, but you know, (laughs) God forbid I needed to go to court or somebody that doesn't necessarily have the means or the access or the privilege or the resources or the education, because, you know, if we're being honest, people of different socioeconomic classes and demographics have different access points and some of them don't have access points at all. So I think, what you're doing is so important to, to really make it equal justice for all. And um, that's super important. Now, tell us a little bit about being a judge. What is your day-to-day? It's not just sitting there in your robe and banging a gavel, I imagine. There's a little bit more to that.
1: You know, I've actually never used the gavel once. Um, <laughs> I kind of, you know, I equate being a judge a lot of times with either being a spouse or a parent, you know, because there's a lot of give and take and there's a lot of knowing, you know, your own limits and what you're willing to impose and what you're not. Um, But I've never once used the gavel. Um, I've decided that if I use the gavel, it means I've lost control. And so I try to, you know, preempt that and not um, have to, you know, resort to, to banging the gavel to get someone's attention. But, you know, there's really no typical day in the life of a judge, or at least I haven't found one. Obviously, there's consistency in terms of court dockets. Like I know that I'm having court every day and it approximately starts at this time. And I know the types of cases that are coming before me. But there's really no typical day because a lot of what we do as judges is put out fires. And so something that didn't exist in anyone's world tomorrow could be a huge travesty this morning, right? And so it's not something that we had on the calendar. It's not something we had planned, but all of a sudden we have to take care of, you know, something that has just transpired. So, um, I mean, obviously the typical day is being in the courtroom, but so much of my work also happens in chambers, you know, the reading and research and prepping for a hearing, either, um, you know, whether it be ahead of time or perhaps taking a recess and doing some more research or taking a case under advisement and doing more research afterwards. So, you know, most people, if they do have any experience with the court system, it's actually what happens literally in the courtroom. But there's so much of the case, um, or so much of what we do as judges that happens, again, kind of behind closed doors and chambers. So it's a little bit of everything.
0: Yeah. And, and it's extremely um, cerebral work, right? So it's, it's not just, you know, of course, showing up in your robe and banging the gavel, which you've never banged because you're a boss. And I'm sure you have you have that death stare, I'm sure, on lock where you don't even need to, you know. The mom stare. The mom stare. That's it, right? Um, but, you know, when I'm thinking about you being a judge, I'm just thinking about it's hard enough for women to become attorneys, right? And to practice with success, balancing their lives and their families. And then to move to the next level to become a judge, it's a completely different ball game, especially you've had to campaign for election. So before we talk about what the campaigning is like as as just a human and then a woman, uh, a young woman in Texas, um talk to me about, you know, what are some of the stats, you know, for for females and um, being judges and and especially in in Texas and in Lubbock County where you practice preside. Well,
1: um, sure. So Texas, I think, does a really good job of compiling statistics that we report to the Office of Court Administration every year. And so it's really easy to find the statistics when we talk about Texas specifically, which I think is what you're asking me about. But I also try to do some similar research nationwide and it just wasn't as easy to find um, outside of the federal court system. And so I can talk specifically to um, to Texas But it has kind of um, piqued my interest just prepping for today and kind of thinking through some things um, to see what those stats would look like nationwide. So I'm going to have to go back and do some more research on that. Um, But essentially, I currently sit, as you mentioned earlier, as a district judge in Texas. Uh, Previous to this, I was in a county court at law, which is a statutory created court. So it's going to actually talk about both of them. When I was in the CCL court, um, the average age, there's 250, by the way, there's 250 county courts at law in Texas. Um, And the mean age was 57. And out of those 250 positions in Texas, 87 of them were female. Wow. So the youngest at the time when the numbers were reported was 33. And the way they reported the numbers was, you know, between 35 and 44. So There were only 32 of us who were between the ages of 35 and 44 and only 87 of us were women. So by the time you kind of put me in both of those categories, I may have been, you know, one of 40 approximately, you know, in Texas with both being in that that age bracket as well as um, obviously the female category. Now that I'm in the district judge position, there are four hundred and sixty five of those courts in Texas. It's just the way that the courts are created. So there's more of them. The mean age um, of a judge in a district court is 54, and there are 172 female district judges in Texas with the youngest being 31, and there are 47 of us between the ages of 35 and 44. Wow. So it's definitely still the minority. I think it's even more the minority in age, um, you know, or the smallest percentage in age, even more than by gender um, in the district courts. But You know, by the time, like I mentioned, when you couple them together, being a young female judge is definitely uh, more rare.
0: Yeah. And what do you think the barriers are? Why don't more women and more younger women like, like you pursue judgeships?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I don't want to be the voice for every female attorney in Texas because I don't know... Um, exactly what everyone is thinking. I think, first of all, the answer to that is everyone just has their own situational challenges and circumstances. And so who knows what all of them are. But collectively, I think that um, the campaign trail is just difficult. You know, when when I'm in campaign season, you know, it's three to six months, just depending on, um, you know, runoffs and things like that of, you know, the breakfasts and the lunches and the dinners and the, you know, speaking engagements at 7 p.m. and the speaking engagements at 7 a.m. and, you know, those sorts of things. And so that is not extremely conducive if you don't have a partner at home who can pick up the slack. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have a wonderfully loving and supportive husband, but he also has an extremely demanding career. And so even though he's supportive emotionally, Um, you know, in in all the, in all the ways he can't physically be here all the time to help. And so I can only imagine what it's like for someone whose spouse doesn't have, you know, the flexibility in their job. Maybe they travel a lot. Maybe it's a single mom. I mean, if you don't have some type of support system, it just almost becomes impossible to do. Yeah. Um, And so I think the campaign part is definitely part of it. I think also, um, a lot of times, because we're talking specifically about working moms, I think as moms, we, we, we want to protect our family. Like that's our kind of innate nature is that we want to nurture, we want to protect our children. And when you decide to run for public office, regardless of what it is, you are really having to put your family out there. And unfortunately, it's a package deal, which we see on the national level. I mean, no one has ever been elected without their family also being elected. Um, for good or bad, whether the, the first family, for example, has been loved or hated, it's everybody. And so that part is really difficult. And the first time I ran, my oldest was three going on four. And so he didn't have that, that perception yet. And he didn't know about the tacky things that people were saying about his mother. And so I really kind of felt like I was able to still be that working mom and kind of still protect him at the same time as it's, as he's gotten older, it's um, become more teachable moments, you know, that sometimes these things don't end, you know, people saying not nice things or making things up or, you know, whatever, um, are teachable moments for us. But I've had to try to turn it into a positive because I know how hard it would be if I focused on the difficulties and the challenges that I put my family through because of my career ambition. So I've tried to turn it into a positive and think about it, you know, from this perspective of, you know, teaching moments and and letting our children see us, you know, continue to suffer and climb, too, because I think that that's important. But otherwise, it's just a really hard Situation to throw yourself into knowing you're exposing your entire family to the attacks and the criticism that comes with campaigning.
0: Yeah. And, and man, I mean, we see it um, when, when it comes to women in the spotlight, whether it's celebrities on the red carpet, whether it's women running for office, there is a markedly different treatment of women on the campaign trail than there is for men. This is a fact of life whether you're running on a local level, a regional level, a federal level, whether you are a Republican, a Democrat, there is this universal truth that it is hard for women to be in the spotlight because the attacks often bridge beyond policy and platform and that which is objective to that which is personal and offensive. Um, and And
1: I think sometimes we tend to critique each other, especially women, um, you know, on appearances, not that men don't, but I, you know, it's funny what sticks with you. The first time I was running, um, you know, I, I go and I have my headshot taken so that, you know, you can use that on all of your ads and, you know, for publicity purposes. And I will just never forget this. I don't know, female, I don't know who she was, but she, um, you know, posted on something on social media and said, she really needs a new hairstyle. Like that is so outdated. And I just, it was funny to me, but it just also gave me that kind of touch of that dose of reality of, People don't always look to qualifications and to the merits. They're going to find something, you know, to complain about or have something to say. And I do think sometimes as women, we're harder on each other or we can be um, equally as hard or harder on other women because we know what it's like to be in their shoes. And so sometimes we expect more from women. Um, But then also I think it's just, you know, sometimes catty. Yeah. Regardless of where it comes from. So, yeah, I mean, I've had my taste of both, Uh, you know, the criticisms about, you know, qualifications as well as appearance. But, um, you know, that's going to be in any situation is what I tell myself, too. I mean, if you really want to run and you want to seek something higher, whether it's, you know, either an elected position or a position within a company that you're going to have to work for, sometimes you just have to figure out how you best get past that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's super important uh, because this is something that that women face, right? Regardless of, you know, the ageism is there, the sexism is there, the the misogyny is there from, you know, and, and I always joke about this sometimes, you know, it's like in the movies, the calls coming from inside the house, It's it's the women that are doing it to the other women. But, you know... How many times, you know, to the people that are listening to this, Anne-Marie, how many times, how many times have you as a woman, uh, as a younger woman, have I as a woman, have other women showed up somewhere to the disbelief that it was you that was in charge, that it, it couldn't be you that was leading this. It couldn't possibly be you because you're just a cute little girl. There's no way that this is you. How do you personally overcome that? Because this is a real challenge in elected office, in in the public sector and in the private sector as well.
1: I try not to take it too personally. I mean, especially in the job that I do, I, you know, I try not to let things like that bother me um, about being the young, you know, the young female. Um, I think what we do is just, we use it to fuel us, right? We, if there's something that negative that's coming at us, we have to decide, you know, is this something that we're going to use for good or for bad? Um, and I don't like to dwell on negativity. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that I don't still have my way of going through it. But I think the best that we can do for ourselves is to try as hard as everyone else. I mean, nothing's going to be handed to you in this life. I don't, I don't honestly think regardless of gender or age, that anything is really truly handed to us. And I just feel like the harder we work, the more, And the more we rise, then we will show other women, then you can rise as well. I mean, we have to have those people willing to kind of take the risks or, you know, put in the time. Think about all the women who came before us. Right. I mean, neither one of us would be sitting here today, but for all of these women who came before us. Um, I'm only the second female in a district judge position in Lubbock County. Um, And the judge that came before me was back in the 70s. It's almost been 50 years. But if it hadn't been for her, it may not have ever crossed anyone's mind, right? Right. When I look at the law school, we have so many female professors. Had there not been the first one, there wouldn't have been a second one. And so I think when we start to, um, you know, look at the numbers, we really need to, you know, pull each other up, not push each other down. We need to find positions or find open slots, open positions for women to fill and the more that we do that and encourage each other, then women are more visible. And then everyone goes, oh, well, if she can do it, I can do it too. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just, it's one of those things that's going to have to start like a small wave and then eventually become more like a tidal wave because it's not going to happen overnight.
0: Yeah. That so,
1: so we have to take to get to the end goal.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's something I always say that if you're in a position to do it, you know, you should always send the elevator back down help other women rise. And a lot of why, yeah, you know, a a lot of why women, and I've experienced it, you know, I started my career on wall street, which is all men. There was no women. There was no Brown women. I was the youngest Brown person, Brown female of any color, right. (laughs) Um, there, and it was, I was, I, I stuck out, right. There was nobody. And, um, Some of the worst abuse that I received as part of my corporate onboarding, which is really just a nice way to say it's hazing, they haze you, (laughs) was at the hands of women, was at the hands of women. And I swore to myself when I was, I remember I was 21 years old, I swore to myself that I would prove everybody wrong, right? Everybody washes out of these investment banking programs. Very few people survive of either gender. It's rigorous hours. But I said through sheer stubbornness that I would eat it and I would live it and I would survive it so that I could ha- I could break the cycle and help other women up. And I think it was um, our current vice president, Kamala Harris, her- she said that her mother told her, you, you – You may not be the first, or even if you are the first, you want to make sure you're not the last, right? And that is so important. That is so important. So Anne-Marie, talking about the campaign trail and talking about, you know, being a judge, you have two children. We are in the middle of a pandemic. You are doing courts over Zoom, right? Right. What does life look like for you now? What was the adjustment like? How are you holding court with two kids, you know, learning the alphabet and addition and subtraction? What's going on? How are you doing it?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that we're doing it well. We are doing it. Um, I guess only time will tell how how well we've done it or how poorly we've done it. You know, the interesting thing about the pandemic is it also provided me such special time with my kids that I realized I hadn't ever had as a working mom. And so that was actually one of those like kind of light bulb moments for me because I didn't know anything different. I had never been a stay at home parent. Um, I had worked from, you know, before I met my husband, you know, through newlywed through, you know, pregnancy through (laughs) having children. So there was never a point where I had just any time with the little ones while they were little Um, And so I actually to go back just a little bit, I'd never had that time. But then when I had Baines, our youngest, um, I went back to work. I went back to the bench two weeks after he was born because that pressure was there that I didn't want to let my docket slip. I didn't want any other judge to have to pick up the slack for me, although we you know, happily do that for each other. It was kind of that like my own stubbornness to your point a a moment ago about I'm not going to let having a child be what everyone sort of remembers about my position. Like, well, she was gone all this time when she had a baby. And, you know, again, to your point, it was women who would ask me, well, how are you going to handle court when you have the baby? And I thought, well, I don't know. How did you work when you had a baby? I mean, it's not any different for me than it is for you, but out of stubbornness, out of guilt, work guilt, you know, out of all of, for all these reasons, I went back at two weeks, and I had had a C-section with veins, and so my mom came and stayed with me and drove me to work every day like a middle school child. <laughs> you know, would drop me off, pick me up for lunch, take me back. You know, I'd see the baby, and um, and that in hindsight was just precious time I would never get back. And so when the pandemic hit. The, the positive, because like I said, I'm always trying to find something positive, was that I had some time with the kids I just never would have had otherwise. So we tried to soak that in. On the flip side of that, I am not a good stay-at-home parent. I mean, I don't know that I would be good full-time just doing, you know, kids in school and all of those things because I just don't have the patience for it. I don't know how much teachers are currently making, but it's not enough. Like, it just isn't. Um, and so we just decided that we had to do priorities and we had to do scheduling because I'm a very like by the task book kind of person. I have to check things off every day. And if I do something that's not on my checklist, then I put it on my checklist so I can, you know, check mark it off. And so the only way we've made it work is just by prioritizing our time and realizing some of these things that we've been doing just don't matter. Like they're fun Or they might be good for one purpose, but they're not good for all the purposes, you know, or maybe our heart wasn't really in it. And so it's been a really good time for us to cleanse our lives of all of the extra stuff that hasn't been um, a priority or had been a priority and shouldn't have been. Um, And then also just scheduling. I mean, it has been it's been hard for everyone. I mean, I don't know anyone that's truly just like flourishing (laughs) during the pandemic. Obviously, there's benefits and silver linings to everything, but it's just been survival mode.
0: I think flourishing in the pandemic, I mean, the bar is pretty low. Like I I consider flourishing in the pandemic, you put on hard pants, right? That is, Mm -hmm. that is flourishing. I mean, the other day I had to, I think I was telling you this earlier when we were speaking, I, I, I put on, I, I decided to put on eyeliner for something. I haven't worn makeup in, you know, I don't even want to explain how long, but um, yes. I was trying to put on eyeliner the other day. I didn't know how to hold a pencil. I mean, it was like it is not like riding a bicycle. Okay. I did not know no. how to hold the pencil. I was looking at myself in the mirror. I was thinking, I don't think this is what I'm supposed to, this is what the after is supposed to look like. And so flourishing in the pandemic is is the bar is very low, but you're right. You know, my kids are in school. Um, but you know, we are it is a very precarious situation you know any given day there's an exposure and then we immediately switch to remote and then there's the stress and the panic and whatever teachers are get paid they're not getting getting paid they're not getting paid enough they need to be paid a lot more these kids don't listen they don't understand addition they don't they don't understand subtraction they they don't sit still i mean they need a billion dollars a week minimum. This is like the minimum wage needs to be raised for teachers to a billion dollars a week. I said what I, I said. Just think
1: they're doing it with twenty or thirty kids, like yes. we're doing it with our two or three or however many we have at home. Can you imagine doing it times ten? Whatever. I mean, they chose this as a profession. <laughs> they willingly chose to do this. They are saints. They are Angels on earth. saints. Angels on earth. Yes. I think you know, I honestly, I do hope that's something positive that comes out of the pandemic is our appreciation for what our teachers do, because it's so easy to just send your kids off. You know that they're learning what they should and they come home in the evening and you have a few hours with them and you know, if it's been a busy day, you might not even really know what they learned that day. But at the end of the year, and they take their test, it's like, okay, they, you know, they learned one through 10. And they, you know, whatever. And so I do hope that this brings some extra appreciation and love to our educators, because it definitely takes a special person not I don't even mean my training, but I mean, in their hearts and in their soul to want to do this for our children. And so um, absolutely, I don't know. God, bless, God bless our teachers. God That's bless our saying.
0: teachers. And <laughs> let, let me tell you, I mean, these teachers, I mean, you mentioned appreciating teachers, and I think one of the uglier sides of the pandemic that has exposed what, what has been exposed is you know, the crumbling infrastructure of education where we treat our teachers as babysitters, where the economy grinds to a halt when the schools are closed, because mothers have nowhere to send their kids, um, you know, for when they work. And this has manifested itself in a mass exodus of women out of the workforce. And it's a travesty and it's a tragedy. And um, we need to, companies need to be providing childcare support And infrastructure. There needs to be better support for working mothers so that the economy doesn't grind to a halt because schools are closed. Our teachers are not babysitters. Um, And working mothers shouldn't have to choose between my child being taken care of versus me going to work and getting a paycheck.
1: You know, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, the working mother aspect um, with school, because to go back to our point earlier about Um, you know, more women in the law, more women in the judiciary. I, when I was um, kind of crowdsourcing this week between, you know, friends across the country, actually one of their major complaints about, or suggestions even about, you know, getting more women into the workplace was ability to, to work more flexible hours because the typical work day for a female, does not also coincide with that typical work day of or school day of a child. And so the two just don't mesh well. And so the flexibility, like if there was a little more flexibility or time to do work, you know, on evenings or weekends, you know, that sort of thing. um, So many people on their own without any prompting just said, I think that more women would join the legal profession if it was flexible. Absolutely. So I think, I mean, I think that's to your point. I mean, for working moms in general, regardless of what your profession is, that that flexibility and that support system would help everyone rise up.
0: Absolutely, and I think what COVID has proved is that it is possible to do business remotely. We we're doing Absolutely. it, you know. So all the people, the companies, the, the the systems, organizations that have resisted saying it's not possible, it's not effective, it's not efficient, have been proven wrong and. What we're really hoping is that this is going to crack that door wide open going forward to sustainable, flexible employment for women, right? Whether you're a judge. I mean, there's there you're doing Zoom hearings, right, Anne-Marie? You're doing Zoom hearings.
1: Absolutely. Did, did you see Lawyer Cat, the Twitter I phenomenon did. I years, did. I mean, a couple of weeks ago? Yes, yeah, so that was actually a dear friend of mine, Judge Roy Ferguson. It was his court in which that happened. Oh my and god! We, yeah, so we've just dubbed him Lawyer Cat now. Like that's just how we refer to him. He's a um, hero, Anne
0: Marie. His commentary, I mean, his commentary in that video. So for those of you that don't know or aren't familiar with the video, um, there was a a court case uh, on Zoom, and and you know there are two counsel uh, logged on with the judge and. One of the lawyers gets on and the cat filter is is on and he cannot change the cat filter. And the best line was, I'm here, judge. It's me. I'm not a cat. And God bless your friend, Judge Roy, you said, Anne-Marie, um, kept his calm, kept his composure. The whole time. Attempt, didn't laugh. Attempted to troubleshoot, you know?
1: Um, So apparently the attorney was having had had to log on from his paralegal's iPad. There was something wrong with his computer. And so the paralegal's daughter or granddaughter, someone was playing with the iPad that weekend before. And so no one knew the filter was on. And so not only was it a device he wasn't familiar with, it was, you know, here pops up the cat filter and he's like, it's, I'm here, judge, it's, (laughs) I'm not a cat. And Judge Ferguson simply responds, I can see that. Like it was... (laughs) He's a hero. He made international international news. I watched him on an Australian network, on a British network. Like he was everywhere. And, you know, the thing I love most about that is, um, you know, we, our motto in our court is grace and flexibility. Um, And we started that a couple of years ago before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, I was like, I guess we can just carry on that motto. But the thing I loved best about that is, you know, it showed that grace and flexibility. You know, we're not here as judges to... Demean anyone or to tell them how they should know better or do better, you know, that sort of thing. We're really here to, you know, facilitate the process. And he did that and he did it in such a gracious way. Um, And it just, it was just a really good moment, I think, for the judiciary <laughs> to have someone like him to be all of a sudden the international face of the judiciary.
0: <laughs> well, and it,
1: I think what this has done
0: is it has humanized people, right? Yes. It's humanized people. So, I mean, a few months ago, I was doing a massive online training session with like 200 people, giant Fortune 500 company. My second son walks by, he knew, do not disturb me unless somebody, I mean, even if you're bleeding, unless it's like gushing blood and you feel like you've nicked yes. it, there's like tears to bleeding. So if it's like tier one to three, you're bleeding, you're fine. Do not disturb me, right? So he comes very casually. I don't notice I'm training and he's standing behind me in the video. And somebody's is like, um, Sabine, uh, just to let you know, I think there's somebody next to you that needs help. And I look over and my son has his head stuck in a motorcycle helmet, like a kid's motorcycle helmet, <laughs> and he cannot dislodge himself. And <laughs> he didn't say anything because he was just he wasn't he allowed to do. Yes. Mom had threatened me. Mice. Yes. But he was he was just like hovering on the side of my screen. And then I had to proceed to dislodge this child's head. From this helmet in front of 250 people. And you know what? Nobody thought it was bad or wrong. Somebody, you know, started sharing stories about how their daughter said on a call in the background, Mom, I just pooped. Can you please wipe me? Like, you know, stuff like that. So I think this has gone a really long way in humanizing um, people to show people that we are real people outside of our jobs, outside of our work, outside of our titles. And that brings me to, to my next uh, point. You know, we, we talk about this all the time, you know, political affiliation, right? Um, you and I sit on the opposite end of the political spectrum, right? You're a young Republican. I'm a young Democrat. And our struggle is, I don't want to say identical, but universal.
1: It's, yeah, we're both in our own real struggles, right? Right. <laughs> the struggle is real.
0: Yeah, and... and Talk to me a little bit about what it's like being a young female Republican in the public eye in today's day and age. And, you know, what does that mean to you? And how are you utilizing that to do a lot of the advocacy work that you do, which you do, I, you know, you're very closely working with the YWCA, but talk to me a little bit about how that, how that fits into your life.
1: Well, I think from the advocacy standpoint, it's, It's almost surreal to hear you say that because I don't ever feel like I don't even know how to put it into words, but it's not like I'm doing it, you know, for my own benefit, I guess, so to speak, it's just where my heart is, if that makes any sense. So I try to find ways to show young women, regardless of whether they're elementary aged little girls, you know, all the way through law school and, you know, college students, that there are women in these positions and there may not be a lot of us. There may be every, you know, in, in some cities, like in some of the larger metropolitan areas in Texas, a a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of judges in that those cities are female. So it looks different based on where you are. Um, But a lot of young ladies don't know another young lady who have done these things that they're, they're looking, you know, looking to do. And so we started something um, a few years ago called Caruth's Court Camp. And it was designed for high school students who were interested in pursuing the law um, in some way, shape or form um, to come to the courthouse, spend a week with me. And we tour the courthouse. We talk to attorneys. We do mock trial. We learn what the law is about. And so those are fun ways to kind of advocate, to use your word, um, it's not just for young women. It's also for, you know, young men as well, but basically just to say there's other, there's people doing these things that you want to do. There's people who look like you, there's people who don't look like you, but regardless, you can do this as well. And so the things that I like to be involved in are those sorts of things. So it, there may not be some type of legitimized organization. It may be, um, maybe judging a mock trial at the law school just so that those female law students see another female judge, you know, doing what they aspire to do. Um, So I wouldn't say that there's necessarily one particular thing I do. I just look for opportunities that speak to me and opportunities that are going to put me in front of, you know, other young people um, that may not have another opportunity or know of someone else doing these sorts of things.
0: Yeah. And I think that's important. And, and talk to me a little bit about, you know, why in your perspective is female representation so important um, on the bench?
1: Well, I think it's, I think female perspective is important, but please don't let me misrepresent that male perspective is good too, right? I mean, It's not just about filling the judiciary with 100 percent women like that's not the goal, unless, of course, those are the most qualified candidates. Don't get me wrong. But I think what it's really supposed to be is a balanced perspective. So not one way or the other. And so for so long with men sitting on the bench almost exclusively, um, it was time for there to be a new perspective. And everyone, please don't misunderstand me. Everyone brings their own perspective. Right. Everyone has we talk about judicial bias a lot in the judiciary when we go to trainings and implicit bias. And we all bring our biases with us and we would be lying to ourselves if we said we didn't have any. The point of under the point of implicit bias is to then find out what your bias is so that you can address it with yourself so that it's not projected onto the people that come into the courtroom. And so I think it's the same for the female perspective. Um, it's important to have a balanced perspective. It's important to have a different perspective. It's important for women judges to have an opportunity to visit with male judges about issues so that we learn each other's perspective. It's equally important for male judges to have an opportunity to discuss issues with female judges so that they can then learn the other perspective. Yeah. Um, so I think it's not necessarily about every judge from here on out should always be a female. (laughs) In fact, that's not the point the point is perspective the point is balance you know we talk about the scales of justice a lot the scales need to be balanced yes. um, and so does the perspective from the bench
0: yeah and i think i think that's i think that's brilliant and i think that applies not just on the bench i think that applies across corporate boards right yes. it, it applies yes. across the c suite and the fortune 500 i mean women have an abysmally small representation in the C-suite globally. And whatever that abysmally small number is, half of that is board of director representation. And less than that, a fraction of that is chairing of the board globally. So, you know, it's that representation and you're absolutely right. And I think for the employers, the big companies that are listening to this, Why is it important to diversify your C-suite? Why is it important to diversify your boards? It's not just to say we have women, we have black people, we have brown people, we have LGBTQ identifying people. That's not what it's about. It's exactly as Anne-Marie just said, it's about introducing different perspectives because with different perspectives comes innovation, comes growth, comes scale, comes access, comes profitability. If you don't care about anything else except the bottom line, it's good for business. I
1: have, yes. I have said that so many times. I mean, if you are a company, my husband and I talk about this a lot because he's in a very male dominated world um, in the oil and gas business, as well as development. And, you know, if you have a product that you're selling and you're selling it to women, but everyone trying to sell, sell it as a male, right. You're not going to have the same type of reception of that project, you know, of that product. Um, if you put another female, in, I mean, think about it. If I'm going to sell you, you know, my favorite handbag that I take to work every day, would you rather me be selling it to you or my husband be selling it to you, right? Because I can tell you why this is the best mom bag that I've ever, you know, work slash mom bag that I've ever used. And so, you know, regardless, it's about balance of perspective. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons to do it, but even if someone is really, um, against kind of the diversity for whatever reason, um, you know, profitability.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's it. One of the ones. I mean, and, and I say it, I said, you know, I say, you know, in, in many ways, I'm a capitalist at heart, right? It's opportunity, you know, to, 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 to make money, to grow, to expand, to scale. This is the goal of business, right? To, to, to turn a profit, to do well, to eventually be able to do other things, But, you know, diversity, if you didn't care about the moral aspect of it, you didn't care about the ethical aspect of it, you should at least be aware that diversity brings, diversity is good for your bottom line as a business.
1: You know what I think about too a lot? I have you, I'm sure you have watched the show Shark Tank. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, you think about it, every one of those sharks has their own perspective. Right. Whether, whether it's young, whether it's older, whether it's male, whether it's female, whether it's real estate, whether it's, you know, a, a fashion design, whatever their perspective is, it's just different. That's why they have them. If every one of those sharks was the same, the show wouldn't be interesting. Right. And either the, um, the person asking for someone to bite is either going to be accepted by all or declined by all. That's why there's diversity there. Right. And that's usually why one shark identifies with the applicant or one applicant diver, um, you know, identifies with a particular shark is because there's that same perspective or that same underlying understanding, whatever it is. Yes, And so I don't think it's about having to go back to your earlier point, You know, the same of anything. So it, it's never been being a young female in this position has, it's never been my platform to say it should be all young females or all females. That's never been, you know, my platform. That's never been what I've pushed for. I want more women because I think it's important. Um, but it's because the perspective is important and we have to be a direct reflection of our constituents. Yeah. We have to be a direct reflection of the people that we are serving as well as do the courts, Yeah, you know, as much as we are a traditional institution in the law, and that's one thing I love about it. Cause I do love tradition. As much as we are a traditional profession, we have to reflect and be accessible to our constituents, to society in the way in which they do things now. Yeah, I can't remember which Supreme court justice it, it's, it was. And I've looked and looked so many times cause I refer to this so often but one of them, and I think it may have been Scalia, said, "You can tell what's happening outside the courthouse by looking to see what's happening inside the courthouse." So all of these important issues that come before the Supreme Court—you know, whether it's um, abortion issues or you know Medicaid issues or um, you know freedom of speech issues—those issues only come to the court because of what's happening outside the court. So in order to best represent the people outside the court, the inside of the court has to directly reflect that as well and there has to be that that diversity there in both perspectives.
0: And I think that's I think that's so profound and I think so something that we don't really realize or think about but you're absolutely right the types of cases that come to you are reflective of the times that we're living in, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you're front and center uh, in your own small way in in deciding you know which way the scales fall; those scales of justice, and that's, I imagine, extremely humbling, and uh, also extremely terrifying. I imagine because you're setting a precedent. People part, yeah, yes. you know, and part. it's it's terrifying. So, Anne Marie, any you know, a- a- as we wrap this up, the women that are listening, you you talked about something that was so important, just in, in that to show women that there are other women. In the field, that there are other people that look like you, Sabine. You know, it would have gone a long way. I think for me, as a younger child, uh, as a child of immigrants, right? I'm third generation here, um, but it would have gone a long way for me to see a woman, a woman of color, a younger woman in 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 finance on Wall Street and management consulting. It would have gone a long way. And um, I am who I am, and I'm just extremely stubborn, which is why I survived. But Many, many women did not because it didn't seem, there, there didn't seem a path for them because they couldn't, they can't, they couldn't see themselves um, in five or 10 years because there was nobody there. There was no female there in five, 10 years. So um, what would you, what would you tell these women, these moms, these working women that, that are listening to you, Anne-Marie, about aspiration, climbing the ladder, sticking it through, you know, managing your priorities, but what are your parting words?
1: I think it's important that no matter what ladder you're trying to climb, that you stay true to yourself. And so you want to do it for yourself before you want to do it for anyone else. And so, you know, you and I have kind of thrown around the word stubborn a lot today. And my mom used to tell me you can use stubborn for good or stubborn for bad. So you can either not move forward because you're upset and you're going to stick your heels on the ground and refuse to move forward, or you can let it fuel you. Yes. And, you know, regardless of age, regardless of gender, there's always going to be a naysayer. There's always going to be someone that says that you can't do it or that you're not good enough. And so when I think about it from that perspective, then my stubborn streak kicks in. And I say, then you know what? I'm going to do it for myself. Yes. I'm going to do it for my own fulfillment. And when you look at it, I think from that perspective, then all of the burden of trying to do it for everyone else or trying to, you know, make carve a path for other people, that's secondary. You have to get there first. And so um, you have to be able to get to that position to then send that elevator back down to use the phrase that I... Love so much. And so I would say, stay true to yourself. You know, never compromise who you are because nothing is worth that. But also remember that you have to do it for yourself first and to not let all of the background noise deter you. And it's easier said than done. Trust me, I've been there. Um, But we can't help others if we don't first help ourselves.
0: That's 100% right. And I always say this, when you're on the airplane and they're doing the safety demonstration, right? I use this analogy all the time. You have to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you can put it on somebody else. And that is the motto that I try to live my life by because as women, we are horrible at self-care. We are horrible at putting ourselves and our needs, even forget first or second, I mean, even anywhere near the top of the list, Right? right? We need yes. to take care of ourselves. And no is a complete sentence. You can say no to things. Um, you can prioritize things and say, this is not a priority. And um, it, it really boils down to self-care, self-advocacy, right? And, and doing it uh, for the right reason. So um, with that, the most honorable, the most impressive, and the most amazing Judge Anne-Marie Carruth. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for mm-hmm. being here with me today.
1: Oh, thank. You. I'm sorry. It's over. I'm sad. I want to, Let's do this for two more hours or something. Let's keep going.
0: Well, we're gonna have you come thank back. You so much. We're definitely gonna have you come back, and you know your 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 insights and your wisdom and your perspective. I think is it was was immensely eye opening to me, but also I imagine and I know for for all the women that are listening. Um, so, so Anne-Marie Carruth. And for those of you that are listening, um, there will be links in the episode description to some of the things Anne-Marie had mentioned about the court camp. And Anne-Marie will share a few other resources as well for anyone that's interested. Um, and of course, you can uh, follow us on social media where we will be sharing a number of things. And um, jobs.mom, we are up. We are live. And Moms at Work, of course, you can follow us at jobs.mom slash podcast. As always, stay safe. Stay safe and we will see you next time. Follow us on social media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out more episodes at jobs.mom slash moms at work.